podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two-Footed Podcast. It is Thursday, the 3rd of June, and we are brought to you by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider that's a virtual privacy network, allows you to go online, change your location, access things like American Netflix, keeps your data safe online. Check out LibertyShield.com. Use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. You can also now check out the EPL Index shop on Etsy. New stuff going up every day. Be sure to check it out. EPL Index shop on Etsy. Right, folks. Not a whole lot to talk about. Obviously, England played last night. They beat Austria 1-0. A bit of a dull game. Not a whole lot happened. Bakayo Saka did get his first goal in an England shirt, so that was great for him. Congrats to him. Really talented young player. You'd imagine it'll be the first goal of many. Thought he put in a decent performance. Jack Grealish played quite well, but he needs to start wearing real shin pads. He is going to get badly hurt. Someone is going to go through his legs and badly hurt him if he doesn't start wearing proper shin pads. It, it has nothing to do with comfort or anything like that. It's him trying to look like a big fella. Um, Jude Bellingham stood out to me. I thought he was the best player on the pitch. I thought Jude Bellingham looked like a guy who's played 50 international games, who's got three to 400 senior club appearances under his belt. He is just a sensational player. And he is going to be a foundational piece for England for the next 15 years, potentially. A magnificent footballer, incredibly mature for his age. Very, very impressed with his performance. Tyron Mings, on the other hand, is a disgrace. Blessed not to be sent off. Absolutely blessed. I don't know how it is that there was no VAR in that game, yet there was VAR in the Scotland-Holland game. No, sorry, the the Wales-France game, which saw Nico Williams getting sent off, bizarrely, but yet Tyron Mings throws his elbow out into the throat of an attacker, off the ball, for no reason. The guy's making a run into the box. Mings is too focused on him and not on the ball. And Polax is the guy. And nothing is done. No penalty, no red card. Disgrace. An absolute disgrace. And UEFA should be looking at that and retrospectively punishing him today. There's no no place for that in the game. And of course, the usual nonsense... Oh, he's not that type of player. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. We've seen Mings do things like this before. We've seen him do worse before. He's a thug. He's a terrible defender. And it's laughable that he's in the England squad. 
Bad news for England. Trent Alexander-Arnold looks like he is out of the Euros. So after all the commotion about whether he would or wouldn't be selected, he plays last night, left to carry a dreadful defence, it should be pointed out. And it looks like he is going to miss out now with a muscle injury. It's a blow for Trent. But at the same time, I said before, I did I did think a summer off would do him the world of good. Now, he won't be happy about it, obviously. But I do think a break in the summer will do Trent all the good. Because he's had a very difficult season. He's not had a real break from football over the last few years because Liverpool have played so much and the seasons have gone so long and he was at the World Cup and all these different things. I think Trent could do with with a summer off. I think it'll do him the power of good. Now, hopefully the injury isn't too severe and it's only a couple of weeks so he can still get his full pre-season in but get plenty of rest. Um... Other news, Antonio Conte is in talks with Tottenham and is looking more and more likely to be confirmed as their next manager. Fabio Paratici, the former Juventus director of football, sporting director at Juventus, is in talks to become director of football. They work together at Juventus. Now, Paratici is is highly regarded, but it is is somewhat falsely. He was at Sampdoria with Beppe Morata. Morata brought him to Juventus with him. They... Together with Conte, were responsible for starting the dynasty at Juventus where they won nine league titles in a row. But Morata was the real brains behind it. He was the one that kept everything moving along, kept the budget fine, kept the wage bill fine. When he left, Paratici went mad. Signed Higuain, signed Ronaldo. Ridiculous contract to Aaron Ramsey. As a scout, as an identifier of talent, he's excellent. There's no doubt about it. He's excellent. The issue is when he's the final decision maker. Now, you would imagine Daniel Levy will retain some sort of control. And if Paratici is just left to identify talents, then it should work very, very well. Conte is a top four manager in the world. It's It would be an incredible appointment by Tottenham. And if he can't win there, nobody can. If Conte goes there and he's there three years and he wins nothing, take the stadium down, box it up, sell it. Whoever's looking for a stadium next, just sell it to them. Fold the club, let the players go, and just be done with it. If Antonio Conte can't win there, it's not worth talking about anymore. His record is incredible. As a club manager, he has only managed seven full seasons at the top level. That's since joining Juventus. And he's won five league titles. Now, before that, when he was with Ariso and Barry and Atalanta... And Siena, that was him getting his apprenticeship, learning his trade. Since joining Juventus, seven seasons, four, uh, sorry, three with Juve, title every season. Then he went and managed the Italian national team. 
two two seasons with Chelsea, won a title the first one, obviously the second one didn't go well, took a year off, two seasons with Inter, won the title the second year. Five titles the last seven years that he's been a manager at club level. And it's not like he's taken over great situations. Juventus were a mid-table team when he joined them. And he rebuilt them. Chelsea, I know they'd won the title under Jose, but they'd finished in mid-table. The dressing room was fractured. There was chaos at the club. He walks in, first season, wins the title. Mourinho spending fortunes at United. Pep spending fortunes at City. Klopp at Liverpool. Doesn't matter to Conte. Walks in, wins the title. He also, by the way, won a Serie B title with Barry. So you could say that he's won six titles in his last nine years. He went to Inter. They'd finished fourth. They were miles behind Juventus. They've... Not just overtaken them, they've demolished Juventus. Now, part of that is Juventus' own fault. But the team he built at Inter was really special. Really, really special. It's it's such a shame that that team is going to get broken up. He's already left, obviously. And we were seeing Hakimi being linked. Now, Lukaku has come out and said he will stay. But if you look at the players that arrived under Conte and the effect that they had, Lukaku in the first season. Now, Godin arrived and was very good in that first year. But they moved him on, his age, his wages. It wasn't really something they wanted to stick with long term. They brought in Christian Eriksen. Took him a bit of time to settle in, but he played a big part then in the title race once he got put into the team last season. Stefano Sensi arrived from Sassuolo. He's been great. Barella arrived from Cagliari. He's been incredible for them. That's four key starters that arrived. Now, Sensi not always a starter. Him and Eriksen tend to interchange a bit. But Hakimi arrived. He, he got something out of Vidal. He got something out of Kolarov. He does have a bit of a fetish for older players, which is maybe a little bit concerning if you're if you're Spurs. But the team he's put together there is is really really strong. And when you look at Handanovic as the goalkeeper, he's past his best, but he's still excellent. Hakimi is a right wing back. A combination of Darmian, Young. Collar off as the left wing backs. Skriniar, De Vries, and Young Bastoni as the, the three centre backs. That was as good a back three as you'll find anywhere. In midfield, he was just getting the most out of everybody. Brozovic and Barella were the Barella were the two that started most frequently. But then Eriksson, Sensi, Gagliardino. Even Perisic. He played Perisic as a wing back quite a bit as well, and he worked well there. But that group, they were so strong. And then you had Lukaku and Latour Martinez up front. Phenomenal team. And really only a couple of players short of what potentially could have been a Champions League winning team. A couple of depth pieces, a depth centre-back would have been nice, a better 
starting left wing back, a long term solution in goal, and maybe a backup striker. They had a couple of good young ones. Really, really impressive. If he comes to Spurs, it's it's going to be really impressive. It's going to be very, very impressive for Tottenham to get him. Uh, Bruno Laga is set to be announced as Wolves' new head coach in the coming days after he was granted a work permit. He didn't automatically qualify under the new rules post-Brexit, but he had his appeal and Wolves have received confirmation that it has been uh, successful. Jefferson Lerma has been suspended for six matches for allegedly biting an opponent in in Bournemouth's 1-0 defeat at Sheffield Wednesday on November the 3rd. He's been fined 40 grand as well and he's denied the charge. How on earth has it taken eight months for that to come through? That's bizarre. Um, Finally then, Scotland have issues surrounding COVID. Obviously, if you saw the game last night, a number of players unable to travel um, because of the John Fleck positive test and the players that were around him. So the hope is going to be that all those players after isolation are fine, don't have any positive tests and won't be negatively affected heading into the Euros because the aftermath of COVID can be rough. We saw it with Trent. We've seen it with, with Mane. Seen it with a bunch of players through the league. Um, right, that's it for news. Enough news. Today is Thursday. Today is question day. So let's jump into these. There seems to be quite a few. So we'll go. We'll start with Owen Hurley. Um, if Liverpool go two up top, they'll probably go for a six-foot-plus striker uh, to partner Mo Salah, I'm assuming. The thing thing is, we, do we go for power and pace or hold up link play to get the best out of Mo? That is a good question. So he's listed some options here, like Darwin Nunes, Pat Sandaka, Andre Silva, Alexander Isaac, Adam Plozic, Dusan Vlahovic, Shamika. Um, I would add Ed Naziri to that list. I think he's one very much worth considering. I think ideally you probably want someone who is more hold-up and link play. Because Liverpool are going to probably have goal scorers in wide positions. At least one in Mane. So if they go in a four, like a 4-4-2, Mane will be cutting in from one wing and then whoever on the other wing with Salah up front. Jota's an option off the bench then, obviously. So I think you're probably looking for somebody who's a capable goal scorer Good in the air, but mainly involved in the hold-up and link-up play. I think someone like an Naziri can do both, has that hold-up link-up play, but can also get you a lot of goals. Vlahovic is a bit more of a goal scorer. His overall game's not great yet, but Andre Silva's the really interesting one. He's a very good link player. He's also a great goal scorer, but his ability to link play is tremendous. So he could be very, very interesting. In a 4-4-2 next to Salah. Uh, Cheyenne Zeng. Been re-watching the 90s Ajax recently. How do you rate Van Hal's team and him as a coach and his influence over the last 30 years? 
do you think he would have worked at Liverpool when FSG were rumoured to first approach him? Uh, yes, yes, I do think he would have worked. I, I think Louis van Gaal is, is one of the all-time great coaches. And that Ajax team that you mentioned back in the early to mid-90s was just phenomenal. And the fact that it was built largely from the academy makes it even more special. That is a truly great team. You had the experience and leadership and just brilliance of Danny Blind and Frank Reichard at centre-back. But then you had Reitziger at right-back, Frank De Boer at left-back. Now, De Boer would move into centre-back when Reichard retired and Winston Bogart came into that position. You had an ability to go with a flat four or a three-one. So both Reichard and Blind could play as the centre-back or the sweeper. Or they could go and sit in front because all, or sorry, both of them had played as defensive midfielders for parts of their career. Reichard for most of his career. So they could go with a 1-3, a flat 4, or a 3-1. And it gave them great flexibility. Then you had the three-man midfield. Seydorf, Ronald De Boer, and Edgar Davids. And you've got a great balance of everything. Ronald De Boer will give you goals, work rate, intelligence, organization. Seydorf doesn't need talking about. He's one of the best midfielders we've ever seen. And Davids obviously was incredible as well. And his work rate, his energy, his ball winning, his ability, if needed, to drop back to left back so things could shift and shuffle was tremendous as well and very underrated in that team. And then up front, you had Finiti George on the right, Pace. Not the most talented player, but in the role Van Hal gave him, he was able to maximize his talents and minimize his weaknesses. So he didn't really have much of a left foot. We didn't need to. Simplify the game. Face up your man, knock it past him, use your pace. Get the ball across. Then you had Yari Littmanen, and then you had um, Mark Overmars on the opposite wing. That was largely their best team at that time. Now, if we look at the team that played in the final, that's exactly how it lined out. But De Boer in that final, one of the little things that Van Hal was so great at was throwing out a tactical change. So in that Champions League final against AC Milan, he put De Boer as a false nine, played Lippmann in a withdrawn role, thinking if he, if he gets in between the lines, he can influence the game more. That was a tremendous team. And then think of the players you had coming off the bench. So Winston Bogard, like I mentioned, I know he didn't do well when he came to England, but he was a very good defender. Not not on the same level as the rest, but a very good defender for a time at Ajax. Um, Nwanku Kanu, talented player, went on to do very well for Inter Milan and for Arsenal. Patrick Kluivert, one of the all-time uh, leading scorers for the Dutch national team. Tremendous player. And I missed the goalkeeper, of course, Edwin van der Sar. 
who, I mean, what a career he had. Juventus, Manchester United, that spell at Fulham, which was always a bit weird that he somehow ended up at Fulham. Um, but what a goalkeeper he was. Like, that team was phenomenal. Rijkaard and Blind weren't at their best at that point. They were, you know, mid-30s. But they could see the game and read the game at an incredible level. And they played it with great ease. You rarely saw them flustered. You never saw them out of position. And if one went to win a ball back, the other one just slotted in, covered for him. And the flexibility was that if, if, for example, Frank De Boer has to come across to cover for Blind in the middle, Edgar Davids drops to left back. If Michael Reitziger has to come into the middle of the park to try and cover for Rijkaard, Clarence Seedorf went to right back. The flexibility, that three, three diamond three is probably the best way to describe it. Reitziger, Blind and De Boer as a three. Reichard in front. Seedorf to the right. Davids to the left. De Boer normally is the more advanced midfielder. Littman as, as the nine. Those two able to swap and then pace out wide. We saw City to this season go with something similar. Now, City's was more of a three-box three. So you had Jao Canseo stepping out of the defensive line to go and play next to Rodri. De Bruyne and Gundigan stepping forward to form an advanced midfield too. And then you had the front three, Mares, Foden and Sterling or, or whatever combination it was up front. But that was a phenomenal team. And think of the Milan team that they beat in that final. Sebastiano Rossi, he was a good goalkeeper, not a great one. Christian Panucci, very good right back. Costa Curta is one of the greatest man-marking defenders of all time. Baresi's probably the best centre-back of all, all time. Maldini's the best defender of all time. Albertini and Desai in the centre of the park. Two world-class players. Zvonimir Boban, an, an elite playmaker off the left. And Roberto Donadoni, massively underrated on the right. Now, up front, it wasn't a classic Milan-level strike force. Uh, Daniele Massaro and Marco Simone, good players. Not great players, but good players. But that, that Ajax team were genuinely tremendous. They lost the final the following year um, on penalties to Juventus, and were, were very, very unlucky. Reitziger had gotten injured, and he missed out. Rijkaard had retired. Bogard had come in for, for Rijkaard, with Frank de Boer moving into a central role. Sonny Saloy came in at right-back. Massive drop-off from Reitziger. Reitziger was fantastic. Really, really strong defender. And then Kiku Masamba had come into the team um, for Mark Overmars, who'd, who'd gone to Arsenal. Um, actually, no, that season, Overmars had the torn ACL, I think, that season. I think that was the season Overmars tore his ACL. Kiki Masamba was talented, but like Finiti George, 
kind of a, a one-trick pony and not as good at his trick as George was at his. Um, Canu started that final. DeBoer dropped into a deeper role. Clarence Seedorf had gone to join Sampdoria. So DeBoer dropped back. Lipmanen became more of an out-and-out 10. That team, though, were great. And they probably deserved to win that second Champions League. They were probably... They weren't as good, but the field wasn't as strong that year. But Van Hal was a real innovator. Like, really pushed the boundaries. Didn't just settle for a, a traditional formation. Forced his defenders to defend big spaces. Forced them to take risks. Forced them to make decisions. Wasn't safety first like a lot of the other managers around at the time. A real innovator. A lunatic. An absolute raging lunatic. Obviously then he went on to Barcelona replacing Bobby Robson and you know, I think he put a few noses at a joint when he was when he was there, but he did that kind of everywhere. Everywhere he went, he put someone's nose at a joint. But he demanded incredibly high standards. Went to the Netherlands, took that job for two years, back to Barca for a year. And then he rocks up at AZ Alkmaar. And I think his his title with AZ Alkmaar is his greatest achievement. He won three Eredivisies with Ajax and a Champions League. Then he won two La Liga titles with Barca. He'd win a title with, with Bayern as well, and he won the FA Cup with United. But I genuinely think his greatest achievement was winning the Eredivisie in um, 08-09 with Azel Alkmaar. Because they just had no business winning the title that season. They're a, a smaller regional club. They'd had a bit of success in the 80s. They'd won the title in 81. They'd got to UEFA Cup final. They lost to Ipswich Town, managed by Bobby Robson. But They'd done nothing really since, and, and he went there and kick-started everything. He had a four-year spell there, won them the title, and then left. And now we see Alkmaar, they're, they're well-known for their academy, really good, well-run club. I, I just think that's his best achievement. But I, I, I love him. I, I love Van Hal, and I think he would have done really well. Um, which old, sorry, this is from Jay Reed, 1987. Which old players will Conte bring in at Spurs, will he dip back into the Serie A retirement home for them or the Premier League? Do you know what, though? Tottenham have a fairly experienced squad, so I don't know if he's going to need to bring in too many older players. Lloris is 34, Joe Hart is 34. They'll be two of his three goalkeepers. I think Matt Doherty will get an opportunity to start right wing back. He's 29, he'll be 30 in January. Toby Alderweireld is 32. Ben Davies is 28. Eric Dyer is 27. It's already quite an experienced squad. It's not really packed with kids. There's only three, four players under the age of 25 in their senior squad. Bergvine, Endembele. Tanganga Roden. Oh, sorry, I, I missed I missed uh, Tanganga and Roden. Davinson Sanchez and, and Regulum. But the rest of the squad is 
fairly experienced. It, it is pretty set on what Conte would want. I, I don't think he's going to need to do the the short-term thing. He'll want to bring in maybe one or two, but they'll be high-level players. I don't think he's going to bring in a Victor Moses or an Ashley Young. I think he'll 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 gamble on a Vidal type. Who that will be, I don't know. But I think he'll he he'll do that quicker than he'll just bring in older trash, you know. Um, Isaac Gilding, last week you liked the idea of a league being run on an aggregate home and away system akin to European knockout football. If the Premier League was to implement this, which teams do you think would excel or struggle? I think Arsenal would struggle. Everton would struggle because their home form is an, an abomination. I think Villa could struggle. United would struggle because their home form is not very good under Ollie. Their away form is great, though. But there's no away goals, so. Um, I think Leeds would be the type of team that would do really well. Now, without having their season in front of me, let me pull it up. Um, I don't know what their home and away record was this past season. Here we go. Yeah, so Leeds at home, 1-8, drew 5, lost 6. Away, 1-10, lost 9. No draws allowed away from home for Bielsa. I think Leeds would do quite well because Leeds are the type of team that they just have that ability. If they need a result, they'll get the result. I think Liverpool and City are the same thing. If Liverpool know that they need to go into a game and win by two clear goals, I think they're the type of team that can do that. I think City can do it as well. I don't know that United could do it. Tuchel, Tuchel at Chelsea, definitely. But see, Rodgers would struggle. Because if Rodgers knows he needs a specific result, I, I think the pressure gets to him. I think we've seen it the last two years. I, yeah, I think there's only a, a handful of teams that would really excel with it. Most would struggle. But then over time, I think they'd get more used to it and it would become the norm. The implementation would be the tough part. Once you get it in, once teams get used to it and adapt to it, then I think it gets a bit easier for everybody. Um, Vinyl Maniac asks, Rumours have Liverpool looking at Saul, Rafinha, Matthias Cunha, Florian Newhouse, Yuri Thielemans, based on their needs, who would you prioritise if you're going to get one at Liverpool? Of that group, of that group, Rafinha, I, is the one I would prioritise because I I would prefer to bring in that wide attacker than a central midfielder because I think you can go to a two-man central midfield with, with Fabinho and Thiago. Rafinha off the right, Mane off the left, Salah and Firmino, Salah and Jota up front. Of that group individually, Saul is the one I would prefer because he's I just I think he's a tremendous midfielder. Uh then Telemans, then Rafinha, and then it would be a gap. I'm not as sold on, on Newhouse as others. He is a, a very good player, but I don't know he's a great fit for Liverpool. Matthias Cunha would be a young attacker to bring in and develop. Very talented. Um, lots of potential. Profiles very similar to Firmino, to Firmino. 
but has quite a lot of work to do. Uh, Eddie Gibbs, can Brentford replicate Leeds' success on their debut season? Possibly. I mean, the thing with Leeds is that teams weren't really expecting what they got from Leeds. Leeds' style of play is so unique that I just don't think Premier League teams were quite ready for it. Uh, with Brentford, their style of play is a bit more run-of-the-mill. Now, they'll still have a, the majority, if not all, of their players, depending on who they sign in the summer, will be unknown to the Premier League. So what you could see is they have a Sheffield United-type season where the first time through the league, teams don't really know what to expect from them, and they cause some upsets, get some wins at home, beat the teams that they should beat, you know, the teams that are going to circle the drain. And that first half of the season puts them in a really strong stead. So if they struggle a little bit in the second half, they still end up in the mid-table. I don't think they'll end up as high as Leeds. I don't think we'll see them get a ninth. I don't think we'll see them get the points tally that Leeds got. I do think recruitment depending, and that's where they excel, I do think they can be quite comfortable this season. But recruitment is going to be the issue. What kind of budget will they have? How quickly can they get deals done? Are teams now going to start catching on to what Brentford do and charging them more than they normally would? I, I think there's there's some variables here, but I do think they can have success and get somewhere between 11th and 14th. Uh, Adam Petrucian. Has your opinion on Nat Phillips changed now that he's dating Gallagher? So I did see this. He's dating Liam Gallagher's daughter, apparently. That is that is very funny. Um, Liam will not be pleased. Uh, Dunno96. I assume it's Dunno, as in your surname is Dunn, as in rather than Dunno, as in don't know. Yeah, I think it's Dunno96. I think I'm just an idiot that's been pronouncing it wrong for weeks. Sorry, mate. Um, who is your 11 of Barclays Premier League players from when they sponsored it from 01 to 16? Not necessarily the best players. Oh, that's a good question. Let me come back to that. Let me come back to that at the end. Um, if you were taking over, a this is from Vinyl Maniac again, if you're taking over at Tottenham, would you trade Kane to City for players and cash and how might you reinvest the cash? This seems like it might be a Coutinho opportunity for a turnaround. I would. I would demand Americ Laporte and I would demand Bernardo Silva. Because looking at the Tottenham team, I think they need a new goalkeeper, but Lloris is serviceable at least for the year. But if you bring in Laporte on the left-hand side of your back three, I think you can go Toby in the middle and potentially Joe Roden or Jaffa Tanganga on the right or Davinson Sanchez, but I think it might be time to just cut bait and sell him. Doherty on the right wing, Regulon on the left, Bernardo, Hoisberg, and Endembele as a midfield three, I think is is quite Conte-ish. And then you've got Son up front. So it depends on how much cash. They want 140 million. Laporte, 
given the season he's had, given the two seasons he's just had, I mean, what is he what is he worth now? Forty five million? Forty? I think if you're Spurs, you drive a hard bargain. City are desperate to get Kane. You have the con- the control here. He's under contract. You don't want to sell. Don't really need to sell. Drive them down on the valuations of their own players. If you could get Laporte and Bernardo and 40 million, 50 million, I, I think you have to do that deal. Then go and buy Dusan Vlahovic. Play him up front with Son. There's your front two. I think that midfield is strong. I think that back three, it's not ideal. I think he'd rather probably bring in a more experienced player on the right-hand side of that back three. Milan Skriniar, I think, is who he'd ideally want. But Spurs will have money to spend this season anyway. So maybe they can go and, and take him. 35 million maybe gets him from Inter. And then it's just the goalkeeper. Um, you could buy Rajkovic from Reims for 15 million, and that will be you sorted. Rajkovic, Skriniar, Toby, Laporte, Doherty. I mean, he's not great, but he's a good wing back. Regulon, and then, like I said, you've got Bernardo, Heusberg, and Endembele as a midfield three. You've got good depth in midfield with Winks, Oli Skip, um, Lo Celso. Delhi, if he sorts himself out, maybe Sissoko for certain games. And then up front, you've got Vlahovic and Kane, or Vlahovic and Son. The other option is a right wing back, which would be quite exciting to see how it would work, would be Steven Bergvine. Remember, he took Victor Moses and made him the right wing back at Chelsea. Bergvine's a much better player, and he works quite hard defensively. So maybe he tries him as a wing back. Um, I think that's what Tottenham should do. Uh, my surname is Can2 because my surname is Can1 is still suspended. Uh, will FSG give Klopp the funds to strengthen or does he have to sell to buy as always? It is a myth that he has always had to sell to buy. A myth. Let's just put that to bed really quickly. Go back. And look at the two transfer windows between 2017 and 2018, including the January one. So the three three transfer windows. Summer 17, January 18, summer 18. Look how much money Liverpool spent. And then try and argue, oh, it's because they sold Coutinho. They got $105 million for Coutinho. Forget the add-ons. They got $105 million for him. The add-ons don't count. The add-ons came later. They got 105 million. They paid 75 million for Van Dijk. 58 million for Naby Keita. 58 million for Allison. 40 million for Fabinho. Now, Mats wasn't always my strongest point, but I can tell you now that adds up to an awful lot more than 105 million. Their net spend over that time was substantial. FSG have backed Klopp in the past. I believe they'll do it again this summer. I don't think he has to sell to buy. I think to get everything done that he wants to get done, yeah, he'll have to sell off some fringe players. But I think they want to do that anyway. You've got a bunch of players there earning 
quite a lot of money to do very, very little. Some bang average players in that squad earning a lot of money um, who could do it being moved on, you know? Um, JN, JNYE. Um, besides the likes of Pulisic, Reyna, Dest, McKenney, Adams, are there any other Americans that excite you? Do you think the national team has a bright future? And one American you'd sign for Liverpool now in the future? Well, the one American I'd sign for Liverpool would be um, Gio Reyna, who I, I really do think is a special, special talent. Um, as for ones, the players that I think are exciting now, yeah, Yunus Musa is the obvious one of of Valencia. He's and he's the other one that you'd I'd really like to see Liverpool keep tabs on. I think he is going to be uh, a top top player. But I do think it is a really bright future. I mean, you know, Daryl Dyke looks very talented. Matthew Hopper looks really talented. Um, Conrad De La Fuente, the who's at Barcelona, he looks. He genuinely looks really, really special. Um, the young kid, uh, Lanes at Heronveen, from what I've seen, looks good. I haven't seen that Efran Alvarez, but he looks... he He's he's rumoured to be very, very talented. Oh, constantly see people who cover MLS or cover the, the, the US men's national team talking about him and what a future he can have. Um, I, I do. I think it's a really positive sign. Chris Richards, the young centre-back who's on loan at Hoffenheim from Bayern Munich, he's really good as well. Um, Brian Reynolds, who's just gone to Roma. There's a lot. There's a lot of really talented young Americans. I would say Eunice Musa is the one, other than those you listed, to keep Keep your eyes on, but and him and Reina then would be the two that I would be very much in favour of Liverpool keeping tabs on. Uh, Bushead, why are no journalists discussing the fact that Kanate could give Liverpool the option to play three at the back or push Gomez to right back and move Trent on into midfield? Um, I don't think Trent into midfield is a real option. And a back three, I think, is a situational thing for Klopp rather than something he'll ever do regularly but it is something I could see him doing Gomez on the right Kanata in the middle Van Dyke on the left now obviously Van Dyke's not left footed but when Liverpool have played a back three in the past with him and the team Virgil has been the one to play on the left of it and he's comfortable there um I just think journalists are looking at Klopp's track record and he's never really been someone who likes the back three uh, all that regularly. I would imagine in his time at Liverpool, they've maybe started in a back three twice. And I can only remember one, which was Brighton away, when he went Wijnaldum, Lovren and Chan as a back three. And it was mental. Um, so, I, yeah, I think they're just looking at his track record. Uh, Callum Perry... Could Conte win the league with Tottenham in his first season if they sign the centre-backs need? No, I, I don't think so. I don't think in the first season because I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done. He'd need to implement his system. 
And his system is quite complex and it does take a little bit of time. Now, it worked at Chelsea because Chelsea were a team that had won a title the year before. It worked at Juve because he got a bunch of smart players. I mean, I just think the gulf to, to City and Liverpool would be a little bit too much to expect him to win the title in his first season. Okay, Alex Wilson. Um, you are the England manager. Choose your formation. Pick your captain and 26-man squad for Euro 2020. Right, okay. Um, so I'm, I'm going to assume that I can't have Nick Pope because he's obviously injured. So I'm going Dean Henderson. Um, I have to take Tiny Arms, I suppose, because he's better than the other ones. And I've said before, I'd have taken Freddie Woodman as my third choice goalkeeper. Um, in terms of of shape, it's going to be a back four. But I think in midfield, it's tough because... The shape I'd like to play is is obviously a box midfield. Um but I've got an awful lot of really good wide players that I'd like to I'd like to use. I think you'd have to go 4-3-3 because I think there's there's just in terms of who you have available, I just think 4-3-3 is probably your best probably your best option to get the best players into the team. Forgetting Trent's injury, Trent is unquestionably the right back. And Walker is the, the backup. Shaw is the left back. And Chilwell is the backup. Now, I will say, if James Justin hadn't got hurt, he is the backup to Trent. And Kyle Walker can stay at home. Um, At centre-back... I go Ezri Konza, Fikayo Tamori, Harry Maguire, and Ben Godfrey. I'm going to pick 22 and then I'll come back and add in the other four. Um, in midfield, my starting midfield is going to be Bellingham. Rice and Mount. And behind that we'd have Henderson, Phillips. And based on how he played this season, I think James Ward Prowse. Up front. I think Foden has done enough to, to warrant a starting place. Kane is obvious. And Sancho, for me, is obvious. I would absolutely have Saka as the, the backup to Foden on the right. Calvert-Lewin, backup to Kane. Sterling, backup to Sancho. So I've now got... Well, I've got 23 players now. I've got three goalkeepers. Dean Henderson, Jordan Pickford, and Freddie Woodman. 
I've got my starting right back is Trent. My backup right back is Kyle Walker. Starting left back is Luke Shaw. Backup left back is Ben Chilwell. Starting centre backs are Ezri Konza and Harry Maguire. Backup centre backs then are Fakayo Tomori and Ben Godfrey. Midfield three, Bellingham, Rice and Mount. Backup midfield three, Henderson, Phillips and James Ward-Prowse. Front three is Foden, Kane and Sancho. Backups are Saka, Calvert-Lewin and Sterling. So that's 23. I need three more. I'm going to bring a fifth centre back. And based on how he played this season, I think that's John Stones. I don't need to bring another full back. Because if I need a third left back, Saka can play there. And Ezri Konza can fill in at right back, as can Fakayo Tomori. And Ben Godfrey can play anywhere across the back line. And I'd be pretty sure that if I asked James Ward-Prowse to fill in at right back for 20 minutes, he could do it as well. So I don't think I need a backup fullback. I'm certainly not bringing a fourth goalkeeper. I think I'm good in midfield. I don't think I need to bring anyone else in midfield. So I'm just going to bring two more attackers to give me more options. One of them, if I went with a diamond midfield, if I wanted to play Rice deepest with Bellingham and Mount box-to-box, Jack Grealish could play as a number 10. So I've got Jack Grealish. And then I want a third striker who can also play wide, and the obvious choice then is Marcus Rashford. I know he had a bit of an up-and-down season, but he still scored a lot of goals. I know he's got an injury problem, but... If he's off the bench, I'm going Marcus Rashford. Uh, I could go Mason Greenwood either. Guy, you are absolutely correct. Um, But I just don't think he's quite ready yet. But that would be it. So um, that's my... My my formation is 4-3-3. My squad, that's it. And um, pick a captain. I mean, Kane is the captain. I, I don't think he's a particularly good captain. Uh, I think it's one of them cases where you give the captaincy to your best player. But as I look up and down that England squad, I don't see many real leaders. I think Declan Rice has the potential to be a proper leader, but I'm not going to cause strife, so Kane will be the captain of the squad. Um, Right. Pick your current Premier League over and underrated 11s. Formation is your choice. Okay, so um, let's get a Premier League table up. This is, I'll co- do you know what? I'll come back to this one because I'll get these other ones wrapped up and come back to this one and to Cal's one. Um, it, it'll just be easier that way. Uh, what is the best thing in Ireland, the best thing about living in Ireland and the best thing about being Irish? Uh, it's from Henry's East. The best thing about living in Ireland is the scenery, to be quite honest. The, the scenery and the people. Uh, most people, not all the people, most of the people, though. But the scenery is incredible. And if you go to rural parts of Ireland, um, it is just a, a a beautiful place to be. If we had good weather, I don't think, I think rural Ireland would quickly become urban Ireland because it would be so overpopulated with people just wanting to experience the lifestyle, the the view, the just, you know, the smells, the sounds, everything like that. Um, the best thing in Ireland, the best thing in Ireland, 
it's probably the people. It probably is mostly the people. The culture, the tradition, the history is incredible. And especially, like, the further away from Dublin you go, the better your experience of Ireland will be. Dublin is... Dublin is very, very unique. And, and kind of like the way London doesn't really represent England, Paris doesn't really represent France, Dublin doesn't really represent Ireland. Dublin's a, a melting pot. And it's, it's a multicultural city with a, a lot going on. But the further away from it you go, the more authentic you, you feel. The, the, go outside what was called the pale, beyond the pale. I do think there's just something incredible about Ireland. And, you know, you head south, you end up in Kilkenny, Carlow, Waterford, Wexford. Go across into Cork and Kerry, up through Clare. Galway Mayo is is just phenomenal. The Galway Mayo, Sligo, Donegal, that corridor, that Wild Atlantic Way. I recommend to everybody visit the Wild Atlantic Way. Okay, next question then is from MTUSA08. Uh, who are your top five Americans in Premier League history? I think Claudio Reyna is one. Always a fan of him. Thought he's a very good player. Brad Friedel has to be one. Tremendous goalkeeper. Tim Howard, to be fair to him, didn't do great at United, but was very good for Everton. I know he hasn't been in the league a long time, but for me, Christian Pulisic is the best American to come and play in the Premier League. And then Clint, Clint Dempsey. I think Dempsey was was really good for Fulham. His spell at Spurs didn't go brilliantly, but I, I think he was a, a quality player. Um, I would say those are the five for me. Gautam LFC. For each side in the Premier League, could you identify one realistic transfer that would be transformational for them? So that's something I'm going to do next week. That is you're stealing one of my show ideas for next week. Uh, I will do that next week. One realistic target that could transform each team. Um, Tuesday, Wednesday next week, we'll do that one. Uh, Sports Lens. Who are five players that completely surpassed your expectations that you didn't expect to be good? How big were Man United prior to Sir Alex Ferguson taking over? Who are the best five managers you've seen and why? Best five managers I've seen and why? Capello, serial winner, great team builder. Capello would be one. Marcello Lippi, his time at Juventus, winning the World Cup. Again, a team builder, a culture setter, tactically exceptional. Vincente Del Bosque, what he did with Real Madrid, two Champions Leagues, and then going on to manage the Spanish team, winning a World Cup and a European Championship. A manager of egos. He took over the Galacticos team, managed all those egos and got the best out of every one of them. Did the same thing with that Spanish team, managed the egos, Managed the Madrid-Barcelona divide brilliantly and got the best out of them. 
Saki, because Saki made transcendent changes in the game. And what Saki was able to do in terms of changing the culture of Italian football and creating a team that didn't play the traditional defence first low block style of Italian football, rather than being a counter-attacking team, he created an attacking team built off a press. Pressing is an attacking action. It's not a defensive action. Some people think it's a defensive action. It's not. You, you Listen to Klopp speak about it. The counter-press is a playmaker. Saki created that, that mentality, that idea. He wasn't the first to create the press. Teams have been pressing for years and years before that. But what Saki was able to do has just had an influence on so many managers that we see today. And Otmar Hitzfeld, for what he was able to do at Borussia Dortmund and at Bayern Munich. Now, I haven't picked anyone managing now because I still think these managers are still creating their legacy. Pep, Klopp, Simeone, Conte. Those guys are still building their legacies. The five I've named are retired. So those are the five that I would say, you know, are the best I've seen. I haven't picked anyone anyone currently in the game. Um, how big were Man United prior to Sir Alex Ferguson taking over? They were huge. They they weren't they weren't nearly as big as they are now. Liverpool were the biggest club in England. United were second. Arsenal were third. They were still a huge club. They had great history behind them. They had the legacy of Matt Busby. They had an enormous fan base. They had a global reach. They'd had superstars, and there weren't many superstars in the English game in the 60s and 70s, but they'd had a couple in Charlton, in Best, in Dennis Law. I would say they were the second biggest club in England. What they became, obviously, was a Goliath, one of the three biggest clubs in the world. I think after the two giants in Spain, United are probably the third biggest club in the world. Bayern probably fourth. I would say they're the four super clubs now. But United prior to Fergie were a, a huge English club, maybe without the global reach that they, they enjoy now. Um, Neil Devlin, Burple Man. Is Guy Drinkle's Carlo Ancelotti opinion the worst footballing opinion you've ever heard? Uh, to which Guy Drinkle has replied, why does Neil love pals that managers so much? I think Guy's opinion is a bad one. <laughs> I've said this to him. I think Carlo's still a, a very, very good manager. I don't think he's a an elite manager the way he was. And I think that happens. I think you look at someone like Rafa Benitez. He's not an elite manager the way he was. Mourinho's not an elite manager the way he was. But he's still a very good manager. Like, the other two are very good managers. I would still take Carlo over a Brendan Rodgers. If you give Carlo the Leicester team from this season, I think they finished second. Um, Michael Olade, how long have you been watching football and what made you start supporting Liverpool and rank the current Premier League managers and why? Um, I, I, I can't remember when I started watching football. I was literally a child. But why I started supporting Liverpool, my dad was a Liverpool fan. His dad was a Liverpool fan. So it just sort of got um, got passed on to me. The first real memories I have of watching football would be like the 88 Euros. 
Um, before that, don't really have any memories of watching games, but my dad would always talk about them. Living in Ireland, we didn't get access to a whole bunch of English football. You would only really watch Ireland play and match of the day. And, you know, when you're three, four, five, you're generally not allowed to stay up to watch match of the day. Um, I do remember watching games in 89. I remember watching Liverpool beat Crystal Palace. I remember Crystal Palace beating Liverpool in the FA Cup semi-final on my birthday. Yeah, 88 would be the first games I can remember watching. I'm sure I'd seen games before that, but they're the first kind of vivid ones that I can remember. Um, Connor Lane, do you think we'll see a world-class Irish footballer in the next 20 years? Why or why not? I genuinely do think we will. And the main reason I think so is because of the dysphoria, because of integration in Ireland, because of immigration. The same way when we look at the English game now, and we see so many of these great young players coming through who's, who are the sons of immigrants. England had immigration into their country long before we did. Like when I was in school, you knew the families that weren't Irish in our town. Even if they weren't in our school, you kind of knew them. There was one Pakistani kid in my school, a boss Barry. His name will always stick with me because he was the only, his family were the only Pakistani family in Ireland, in, in Navan at the time. But now immigration's become a huge part of our culture. And it's incredible. And you've got, the sons of Nigerian people lining up to play Gaelic football. So you're getting this whole new burst of talent coming into the, into the, into our game. You're getting a bigger pool of players to be developed. And like I say, when you see it with England, it took them quite a while to read. It was the odd one, obviously, but it took them a while to fully integrate and, and really embrace this talent that they had. I think it's taken us a bit of time. I think it's starting. I think you look at the Irish under-21 squad and the senior squad, uh, and you see, you know, Jonathan Afalabi from, from Celtic. He's a talented player. Um, the kid from West Ham, Udebeko, he's talented. Michael Obafemi. The one I really have high hopes for is um, is Benoa, the kid at Getafe. He's, I think he's got a chance to be really, really special. And I think having that new level of talent coming in spurs on, our, you know, the, the generational Irish le- uh, talent. As we've seen in England, we've seen... Harry Kane and, and people like that, Jack Grealish, you know, Jack Grealish is not world-class, but Harry Kane is world-class. I think it creates more competition. I think it makes, I think it makes for a more diverse approach. I think the one thing we need is we need more good coaches. But I do think we're going to see in the next 20 years, for sure, a world-class Irish player. I think there might be a couple who are involved in the under-21 team, or even the senior team. Like, I really, really rate 
Jason Knight of Derby. I really think he's got something about him. He's only 20. I think he's good enough to play in the Premier League now. And I think he's the type that has the mentality that and the talent that could drive him on. World class might be a step too far, but he'll. I think he can get right to the cusp if he makes the right moves. And that's another factor is what clubs do players join? Do they get lost in the shuffle? Do they get developed properly? Seeing the likes of Derby having such a productive academy is fantastic. I think if you're a young Irish player looking to move over to England and you've got you know all these different offers coming in, I think they're better off going to a Derby than going to a Manchester United because I think they'll get more structured coaching and more opportunity. Um, right, pick your current Premier League overrated and underrated 11s formation is your choice. Well, we'll start with overrated. Um, Jordan Pickford has to be the goalkeeper, surely. Although Arsenal fans do think Bernard Leno's a top five goalkeeper, so maybe it's him. Because I don't think anyone's foolish enough to think that, that Pickford is a top five goalkeeper. So we'll go with Leno. Reese James at right back. He's good, but he's not nearly as good as he's made out to be. Not even close to as good as he's made out to be. At left back, unfortunately, it, it's probably Ben Chilwell. Again, he's good, but he's not world class. He's not elite. He couldn't keep the first choice spot at Chelsea this season. So I'd be inclined to go for him. Maguire has to be one of the centre-backs. Has to be. Purely on the basis that United paid £80 for him. Again, he's good. But he's not. He's not world-class. He's not a top-class centre-back. I think Ben White goes next to him. Do you know what? I'm going to pick Tyron Mings at left-back just because I have to have him in the team. Tyron Mings is a bad defender. He makes so many errors. His athleticism gets him out of trouble quite a bit. And I hear the excuses over, you know, it's because he's a, a great passer of the ball. He's not a great passer of the ball. He's a decent passer of the ball out from the back. Not a great passer of the ball by any stretch. Um, so I'll go Mings at left back. Maguire and Ben White as my centre backs. Um, in midfield... Hmm. Pogba has to be. <laughs> yeah. He just has to be. A great talent, but not a great player. 89 million for a fella who's had one good season in the five he's been at the club. Um, Jordan Henderson is drastically overrated by Liverpool fans, but he's not overrated on the whole. Like I think most of the football-watching universe realises that Jordan Henderson's a, a good player in the right system. He's by no means a great player. Granite Xhaka. Again, Arsenal fans think he's good and he's just not. So I'm going to stick him in. Him and Pogba in midfield. I'm going to play Grealish off the left in my overrated 11. Again, he's a good player. Has spells of games where he's very good, but hasn't consistently performed over a season in the Premier League yet. 
there's nothing to, to show that he actually facilitates winning consistently over a season. Like, even in the championship, he never dominated the championship. That, that season they came up, he had a really good run. But again, he got hurt. Wolf Zaha, I think you have to factor him. Again, really, really talented. But when I see people say, oh, Wolf Zaha should be at City or Liverpool or United, I just know he's not that level of player. And like Grealish, I don't know that he facilitates winning. I don't know that I ever look at Wolf Zaha and think, he's the type of fella that could raise the level of a good team. I think you can put him in an average team and he'll make them decent. But again, he's another one like Grealish again, who, who everything has to run through him. He has to have the ball all the time or he's not an effective player. Um, up front, Richarlison has to be one. I mean, he's a good player, but he's so inconsistent. He's a nothing player in a lot of games. I mean, I don't think Benteke is rated anymore, but I'm inclined to put him in. Crystal Palace, by the way, signing Benteke to a two-year extension is abysmal squad management. Absolutely abysmal squad management. Um, hmm. I think Gabriel Jesus is the one I'll go for here. Because I don't think he's a particularly good player outside the penalty box. And I've seen people suggest that Tottenham should be all over him, that Liverpool should be all over him. And I don't really see why they would want him. Because aside from being a very good finisher, I'm not sure what he really offers. So that would be my overrated team. Underrated team, Emmy Martinez. Um... The fact that Arsenal sold him. And I, I don't think he's gotten nearly enough credit for the season he's had. I think he's the best goalkeeper in the league this season. Right back, James Justin. Left back, Matt Target. Ezri Konza is one centre back. I think Johnny Evans is the other. Fabinho in midfield. He is incredibly underrated. Despite being as good as he is, it's incredible how underrated he is. Even among the Liverpool fan base, he's underrated. I've seen people suggest he's not even the best holding midfielder at Liverpool. He's the best in the league. In midfield with him, I don't think Gundogan gets nearly as much credit as he deserves. I really don't. As much as I think smart people realize how great he is, I think there's a there's a twisted view on Gundogan, and I think he is underrated. So I'm going to put him with Fabinho. He's gone now, but Ginny Wijnaldum would have been in this team. Ginny Wijnaldum is massively underrated, massively underappreciated. I'll come back to the other midfielder. 
But Bamford has to be in the front three. Bamford's very, very underrated. He he had a tremendous season. And rarely got a mention. Rarely got a mention for the England squad. I think Young Min Son is underrated. He had an incredible season, but it's all overshadowed by Kane. But if you look at their all-round play, I would rather have Son than Kane. I think Son offers more as an all-round player. Mo Salah is criminally underrated in, in England. Criminally underrated. Third season in a row, he's not even nominated for PFA Player of the Year. So Salah, Bamford and Son is my front three. Gundogan, Fabinho. Third midfield is hard. I think Suchek is is probably rated about right. He'd be a contender. I think Tielemans is finally getting the, the respect he deserves. If Joe Willock could continue... I mean, Joe Willock's not even properly rated by his own club. Uh, Joe Willock's worth a mention, but I don't think he's quite... I don't think he's quite underrated. Do you know who is underrated? He's not an ideal fit in a 4-3-3, but I'm going to stick him in anyway. It's Dwight McNeil. Dwight McNeil is very, very underrated. If Dwight McNeil played for anyone else... I think he'd be getting linked with top clubs regularly. So I'll play Gundogan on the right in my midfield three, Fabinho and uh, and Dwight McNeil. Yeah, that's that's what I'd go for there. And then the last question we had uh, to go back was from Dunno96. The 11 of the Barclays Premier League. So... I mean, it, the thing is, it's hard not to pick the best players because they are the ones that kind of jump out the most. And some of the players that, I mean, King Kladze and stuff, he was in the Premier League before that, wasn't he? He was at Derby from 2000 to 03, but he's best remembered for his time at City, which is before this period. So he's Him and Juninho are the type of guys that, Spring, but that was when it was the Carling Premiership. Um, if we look at right, oh one, Berbatov is in my team one hundred percent. Berbatov as my nine, with Suarez and Henri either side, is my front three. Suarez from the right, Henri from the left, Berbatov as the nine. A little mix of everything. Best of luck trying to defend them. You have to pick Gerrard as one of your midfielders. I'm trying not to pick just the best players. Because I really want to pick Keane or Vieira. Now, Keane's best years arguably came in the 90s. Vieira, I think, really found his groove from 
from about oh one up until he left. I've got to have Michael Essien in there. Do you know what? I'll go Gilberto Silva as my holding midfielder and then Essien and Gerard sort of box to box. Essien a bit more defensive, Gerard more attacking. He's given some suggestions here. Oh, see, like they like to see Yakuba and Morton Gams Pedersen. See, I, I do like these type of players. I'd need to put some thought into this because I am just picking a best 11, really. Like, if I think right backs, I'm thinking Zabaleta, who's the, I think the best right back of that era. But he's one I just have trouble separating. Guy mentions Mark Viduka, and that's a great shout. And then there's like people like Kieran Dyer, Lee Bowyer, Michael Jubery. Just naming Leeds players at this point. Um, Harry Kuehl, I think, is hard to remove from that era. That's a tough one. I mean, because, like, centre-backs, Ricardo Carvalho has to be one of my centre-backs. Has to be. And I think Saul Campbell has to be the other one. But again, Saul Campbell was great in the 90s as well. And Ashley Cole has to be my left-back because he's just the best left-back. Petr Cech with his, with his rugby headguard, his uh, scrum cap, is the uh, is the goalkeeper, but that's that's a best eleven. That's not sort of a defining eleven. And again, a lot of the names that pop into my head are sort of pre Barclays era, like Efana Coco, who I just always remember scored against Everton multiple times. Brian Roy, Richard Shaw at centre back, he's about five foot eight. John Salako. Remember Jason Yule and Carl Court and you know Paul Kitson and John Hartson. I'll go with my best eleven that I've picked, but I will I will actually take some time and and write out a team and I'll throw it out next one of the days next week of just kind of. Not top players, but players that really do sort of stick out from that era. Um, but I'm going to leave it at that for today because this has gone quite long. Um, thanks, as always, for the questions. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you to Guy Drinkle for his patience, uh, but not thank you for his terrible opinion on Carlo. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.